I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they mate picked me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. You have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. Welcome back to United States of Dramerica, and this will be an episode I imagine like no other. I am beyond delighted to have a man who I've shared many a whiskey with, a true Scot, and a man who, when I met him last, was just the chief test pilot for Virgin Galactic, but of course now is the chief pilot for Virgin Galactic. Welcome to the podcast, Dave Mackay. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Good to see you again. So I guess we have to just start... So. How does a man from Scotland end up as the chief pilot for a company which at some point soon will be pioneering commercial space flight? Yeah, I, I often ask myself that same question. <laughs> How on earth did this happen? Well, you know, it's, uh, it, it, I mean, it's just basically a young boy uh, starting off with a dream and um, being inspired by things I saw and read in my youth. So I was, um, <clears throat> I was brought up in, in the very north of Scotland, in an area where military aircraft uh, flew overhead my, my home on a daily basis. So uh, this is right up in, in the north of Scotland in Sutherland. And Sutherland is, uh, is a beautiful county, uh, Caithness and Sutherland, that area, the whole northern part. I'm, I'm biased, of course, but I, I love it up there. But uh, not many people live up there. And uh, so for, for that reason, it was used extensively by the military um, for low flying training. So you could fly at very low level and uh, not disturb many people at all. And uh, the, the actual natural entry point to that area was the village that I, I lived in from the age of six until I, I left home to go to university at 18 uh, a village called Helmsdale on the east coast of Sutherland. And so we would have uh, aircraft like the Buccaneers from Lossiemouth flying across the Murray Firth there, entering Sutherland overhead my village and uh, doing their bit. So, um, you know, as a young boy, I would see this daily air show and uh, I could watch it from my school classroom window as well. And occasionally I got told off by the teacher for looking out the window when the aircraft flew by. But you know, you know, to see that as a as a young kid, um, fast aircraft flying at high speed over your village at very low altitude, making dynamic turns, that was that got me thinking straight away. Wow, that looks like a great job. It looks much more interesting than the the uh, the lessons I'm being taught in this classroom. You know, I'd like to do that when I grow up. And so that's uh, that was the initial spur into uh, to get interested in aviation. And then, you know, this is the 1960s, uh, the, the moon program, the, the human space program started in, in the States. And 
so I, I watched that and uh, and and suddenly, you know, going back to my school, our, our teachers had the foresight to think that this is incredible. The children ought to see this. As I remember them wheeling, you know, black and white televisions into the, the classroom so we could watch some of the the uh, launches uh, that were taking place uh, whilst we were in school. And, of course, I watched them at home as well on other occasions. And um, so, you know, to watch uh, an almighty rocket like the Saturn V taking off in real time on television in your home was just extraordinary. And, you know, those people that went to walk on the moon, it was just uh, an incredible time. So that so all of that was just uh, you know t- it seemed really audacious. How on earth can you navigate from the earth to the moon and and do it so precisely and you know burn the rocket motor on the way for you know I don't know twenty seconds or so just so that they get the entry point into the lunar gravitational field exactly right. That that was almost mind-boggling to me. How on earth do you do that? And 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 then those later flights were. People walked on the moon and drove cars on the moon and picked up rocks to take them back. And it was uh, an extraordinary time. And so I watched all that. And and at some stage in that program, I found out that those those astronauts were former military test pilots. And so suddenly I put this plan in my head. Hey, you could be a pilot and you could fly at low level and uh, that would be really exciting. And then you could become a test pilot. Being a test pilot sounded really exciting to me. And then you could become an astronaut and you could walk on the moon and Mars is next. That's just around the corner because that's the way it seemed in, in the late 60s. And um, so anyway, that was that was kind of this dream that I had. Um, and I kept it, you know, throughout my life. And um, so I... Uh, I, I went to Glasgow University and uh, I learned to fly there with uh, an organization called the University Air Squadron. And I absolutely loved flying. It was just the most uh, exciting thing I'd ever done in my life up to that point, certainly. And um, uh, and, and I, I studied aeronautical engineering because I thought that would be a, a great sort of qualification to have. Uh, and I joined the Air Force and um, you know, eventually, you know, I became a test pilot and and so, you know, everything was going extraordinarily well, according to my big life plan, my very ambitious life plan that I put together uh, from a very early age. And, um, you know, there I was as a military test pilot. And, but you know, the UK did not have a human spaceflight program. And so, you know, it just, it, it was always there. You know, I knew that really it almost certainly wasn't going to happen in the UK but, you know, I'd given it my best shot and what else could I do? And um, so after 16 years in the Air Force, uh, having had a great time, I I was faced with the prospect of uh, working working behind a desk, doing manager, more man, managerial tasks. And it just didn't inspire me at all. I, I just wasn't ready to, to stop flying. So I left the, the Air Force and... Uh, was fortunate enough to get a job with Virgin Atlantic, and um... so let me stop you there, Dave. So, I mean, it's an incredible story of, you know, I've spoken to people in the entertainment industry who talk about, you know, seeing movies and thinking that's what I want to do, and obviously you've done the the equivalent in your industry. So, when you were in the RF, was it as simple as sort of, you know, you went as far as you could and you thought, right, the only way to get into space is to go and work for Virgin Atlantic because 
they've got Virgin Galactic. Well, they didn't have Virgin Galactic at that time. You know, so this was, uh, I, I left the Air Force in 1995. And um, uh, the, because I, I'd i achieved what I wanted to achieve in the Air Force. Mm. Yeah, I had a fantastic time. I loved it. But I, I didn't like the thought of what was coming next, which was more working behind a desk. And uh, I, I still love flying. I still love flying to this very day, obviously. Um, and so I... The, the the options were to go to the airlines, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a job with Virgin Atlantic. Now, I I didn't, you know, Virgin Galactic didn't exist at that time, but I did know that uh, Virgin Atlantic and the Virgin Group was headed up by this uh, great adventurer, Richard Branson. And I did honestly think that, you know, if something exciting could happen in this company, you know, the, the, because that's the sort of person he is. Yeah. And that was part of the attraction in uh, Virgin Atlantic. Now, the the other funny thing is that I remember not long after I joined, um, driving into Heathrow Airport, being driven into Heathrow Airport on the crew bus to to fly to somewhere. And uh, there, there there's a display area, uh, an advertising space, uh, just the other side of the tunnels as you drive in from the north side underneath the the, the runways there and come into the central part of Heathrow. There's a display area on the left side there. I remember driving in one day and up there was a model of the space shuttle in Virgin Atlantic colors. And underneath it, it said something like, you know, today, the Atlantic, tomorrow, who knows where. And so that, that was the sort of company it was and still is really. And uh, that, that kind of registered with me and, and sure enough, then a, a few years later, you know, um, other things happened, which eventually ended up with me being in Virgin Galactic. So, yeah. Extraordinary. Now, look, with some some of my guests, we get quite a long way into the podcast before we start drinking whiskey. But given that you and I met at mostly whiskey tastings uh, when when you were, well, I was in Los Angeles and you were just up the road. So let's let's have a whiskey. Now, obviously, we're doing this remotely. You're in New Mexico near the spaceport. What have you got in your glass over there, Dave? I have a Klein Leash, which is my local <laughs> distillery. When I say local, it, my local when I was living in uh, in Scotland. So Klein Leash is uh, distilled and bottled in uh, Brora, a little village called Brora, which is just 12 miles south of the village that I was brought up in, uh, in, in Helmsdale. And uh, so I've got a... Uh, an affinity uh, to Klein Leash for obvious reasons, not least of which is, is, a, is a really nice whiskey. Yeah. So I normally when we do this, obviously when we do it in real life, we drink the same whiskey together. Um, obviously when we do it remotely, we end up often with different whiskeys. So I couldn't decide. I try and pair my whiskey with my guests, and I was trying to work out which of the two I should go with. I was thinking about going with Wolfburn because – that's a northernmost distillery or mainland distillery in Scotland, which I don't think is a million miles away from, from where you're from. And then my other option was Klein Leash 14. So I've got a Klein Leash 14 at this end. Yeah, that's exactly what I have here. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, so this is good. This is like the old days when we could do it in real life. So anyway, there you um, go. yeah, yeah. Cheers to you, David. Cheers. Um, flying. So I know people who fly um, and are obsessed with flying. I It's not something that's ever, I mean, obviously I fly a lot, but I've never wanted to be a pilot. The very, very, very first time when you were at university, you were part of this air squadron and you, you're in a plane and you're about to go up, 
I assume with an instructor beside mm. you or behind you, and they're going to let you be in charge of the plane for the first time. What was that that first feeling like? It was, gosh, what was it like? It was, it was very, very special to be in control of a, an aircraft, a machine that is actually in the air. And um, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm still, I'm still kind of fascinated by uh, airplanes uh, in uh, in an almost childish way. Even though, you know, I. I've been with them all my life, really, all my working life, and I am, you know, I understand how it all works. It's, it's still some. There's still something really special about flying. The this three dimensional movement through space is is a beautiful thing. You know, it's almost like a like a work of art, I think, and uh, and that's why I still enjoy it today. I enjoy it for two reasons. First of all, I, I like the the beauty of flight itself. You know, it's just. I love this ability to move in three dimensions, um, but I also um, I'm always looking for the perfect flight. I don't think I've ever had I've never had something that I could say well that flight was absolutely perfect from start to finish. Everything I did was absolutely perfect, and that that keeps me going. I'm always seeking perfection in in everything I do. And so that's one of the that's one of the reasons I love it. But I still look at, you know, I still look at you know large aircraft like seven four seven, which I used to fly, you know, filled with hundreds of people, uh, with lots of food and drink, and uh, you look at how it just moves. It still fascinates me, even though I understand the, the science, the engineering behind it all. So flying is. Um, Right from the get-go, it was kind of everything I, I hoped it would be. You know, I read about it in books. You know, before I before I did it. You know, from a I had the Ladybird book of uh, aviation. I've still got it on my shelf somewhere. And I remember reading that. You know, you know, from cover to cover, many many times, and just trying to understand how how airplanes work and you know why are some airplanes better than others? Why do some fly better than? Others, what what makes a good aircraft? What makes a bad aircraft? That kind of thing, and um, I, I I love to know how things work, and and that's part of it, you know, is uh, how the machinery actually works. I was always fascinated by things and by, by mechanical things as a child, just pulling things apart and rebuilding them, and liking to liking to imagine that I made them better by rebuilding them, and often they didn't work again. <laughs> but I used to, I I just like to know how things work. Because obviously you would have flown smaller aircraft when you're in the RAF, and then you've flown 747s with you know, literally hundreds of people on and food and drink and you know whatever else for hundreds of people. Do you, do you prefer the, the agility of a smaller aircraft or the responsibility of a bigger aircraft, or is it about the place that you're going or the things that you're seeing rather than what you're sitting in? Um, I, you know, I like the variety, you know, I, um, it's like, uh, you know, music or, or books, you know, I mean, I, I, I like different types, you know, um, like whiskey, you know, different, different, different whiskeys offer different experiences and it's the same in aviation, you know, I, I, I enjoy all sorts, um, obviously there are some vehicles which are very exciting, very dynamic. Um, spaceship is one of those, obviously. 
you know, a tremendous acceleration and uh, it takes you to amazing places, goes to incredible altitudes. And, and that, that's fantastic. But I also, I, I flew a lot of historic aircraft. I've flown the world's oldest original flying aircraft, a uh, 1909 Bladio with the original engine in it. And uh, those, those really early aircraft I've got a great passion for as well, because that was a great time of experimentation in aviation. Uh, you know, there were some amazing characters there who, you know, uh, designed, built, and test flew their own aircraft with very little knowledge, very little knowledge of aviation, of, you know, of how to fly. They were making it up on the hoof, and they were very brave people and remarkable people. And so flying those really old aircraft, you see that those first years of aviation and the different experiments that were done with monoplanes and biplanes and triplanes and, and more and different forms of engines. And uh, so that, you know, I've flown a lot of um, of those pre-war aircraft. And to me, that's also, that's equally fascinating that uh, uh, and quite exhilarating as well, because some of them barely fly and, uh, and some of them, the controls are the wrong way around. You know, you full power, you you pull the throttle back, and and some of them don't have any instruments. You know, it's so believe me, that can be quite exhilarating as well. So, yeah. yeah so I, I I like all sorts. Yeah. So when when you were flying with Virgin Atlantic, obviously, you know, they only fly to interesting places because that's the only way you can get three hundred people or more to to fly with you. Do you, do you in, was that part of it for you, not just the flying, but the fact you were flying over fascinating mountain ranges and landing across beaches and all the all the places that you went to and different skylines? Is that is that part of it, the things you see from a unique perspective? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I, you know, there's a, there's a saying in aviation that the pilots have the best seats in the house. And, you know, because we've got these fantastic views up front and I used to, um, you know, when we're in the cruise, at least, you know, I used to take a lot of photographs from from my from my seat up front, and uh, you know, we regularly we went to San Francisco and LA, and often for those flights, we'd head up north out of the UK because that's the shortest route. Uh, we'd head up north, uh, out over Iceland, Greenland, in over northern Canada, some of the sites there, you know, Iceland and Greenland in particular, maybe. Um, uh, they're just absolutely fascinating places to fly over. And then the northern Canada is wow, it's just incredible in winter in particular. And um, and then going in the other direction, there was another, you know, going down uh, into India, we'd fly over in a region of uh, Pakistan um, where it looked like somebody had, you know, taken a great big spoon and stirred up the surface of the earth. I mean, just amazing um uh geographical shapes on, on the ground and you know often I, I used to love looking I still do this today as well I just look out the window and think well how on earth did that how on earth did their surface end up looking like that it's fascinating you know I'd, I'd love to know more about geology and, and geography mm. uh, but certainly that's part of it and then of course there's the skies as well you know the sunrises and the sunsets and the northern lights over uh, you know, northern Canada in particular in, in winter. I mean, just some amazing uh, sights of uh, of uh, the Northern Lights where it's just the, the sky is at nighttime with all these different colours is very, very dynamic. It's like, 
sheets of um, you know curtains flapping in the wind just over immediately around you and overhead you it's just uh, incredible sights yeah and so that's that's another one you know another aspect of flying which I I still love is just looking out the window <laughs> extraordinary now look, obviously we can't have the chief pilot from Virgin Galactic and not at some point talk about space so but before we get into the space bit you're you're at Virgin Atlantic so you know you see this display at the airport is this where you know, do you email HR and say hey are we building spaceships I mean how does how do you how does that move around how do you find out that there's more interesting things going on and that galactic is a thing well what happened was that uh, Virgin Atlantic or Richard Richard Branson chose to uh, sponsor Steve Fawcett to fly solo non-stop around the world in an aircraft built by Scale Composites in Mojave, California, called the Global Flyer. And uh, so uh, that was built for Steve Fawcett, who was a serial record breaker. He wanted to become the first person to fly solo non-stop around the world. That aircraft was built by Scale Composites in Mojave. And Steve Fawcett and Richard had met during ballooning exploits and competitions and and they became friends, and uh, and so uh, Richard Branson uh, offered to sponsor him uh, or partially sponsor him in return for the aircraft being painted in Virgin Atlantic colours. So this uh, this extraordinary aircraft was built in in Mojave in Virgin Atlantic colours, and uh, I met in fact in a bar in Hong Kong. I bumped into one of the the team that was working uh, on this project and I asked, you know, how, how's it going? And, um, and this particular guy knew my background as a test pilot in, in the air force. And he said, well, interesting. You should ask that Dave, I was about to get in touch with you and uh, we've, we've got this technical documentation from the company. I'd like you to have a look at it. And so I did, he sent it to me. I, I had a look at it and um, I wrote a report in it. And uh, he said, well, this is, great, I'd like you to come out to, to meet the team in Mojave. So we arranged to do that. We arranged kind of simultaneous um, Virgin Atlantic flights. We booked them through our, our crewing and um, we went up to Mojave uh, to look at the Global Flyer and the Global Flyer was extraordinary, uh, you know, just an amazing vehicle. Uh, talked to the, the test pilots and the engineers uh, about that aircraft but at the same time, Skilled Composites was building um, and test flying, actually, uh, a vehicle called Spaceship One. Uh, and that was built to, to attempt to win the X Prize. Um, in, uh, and that prize had to, be won by the, had to be won by the end of 2004. And the, the idea was that you, you built a space vehicle, which is capable of carrying up to three people into space and, and back. And you had to do it twice within a, a two-week period. And um, Bart Rutan had had this plan to, he had been thinking about building a spaceship and then this competition came up and he was approached by Paul Allen, uh, someone with a, a lot of money, of course. Uh, and Paul Allen also had seen it and he asked Bart, you know, could, could he build something to, to win this prize? And so um, Spaceship One was built by Skilled Composites and it was actually starting to fly when we were out there. So uh, we were very interested in the Global Flyer, but we were even more interested in this spaceship that the company was building. And so we managed to talk our way into flying the simulator, which we did. We talked to the engineers, the test pilots, so Bart Rutan himself, um, about this amazing thing that was going on. So this was early 2004 now. 
And uh, it was pretty obvious by that time that uh, Skilled was the only one that had anything flying. And it was pretty clear to me that they were going to win the X Prize. And so we asked, you know, what's, you know, what happens after? You know, could you build something bigger uh, to carry more people uh, on a commercial basis? And Bart said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And, uh, and he said, but I'm not interested in, you know, running a, a space line or anything, but maybe your boss would be. And so that idea went back to Richard Branson and he grabbed it with both. And, and, um, and so when, so when Virgin Galactic seriously got going and they decided they needed a test pilot, I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah. So there's a lot of luck in life, but, uh, there we go. That's how it happened. So I guess two questions, one less important than the other. When you were in the bar in Hong Kong, were you drinking whiskey by any chance? Because that would be- <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I was probably drinking beer. It was early in the evening. <laughs> oh, okay, that would have been a, when you do your memoir, you can just alter it and say yeah, you were I'll alter that bit here. I'll say it was a climb leash or something. Yeah. Um, so actually, I don't think I knew that. Because you know, I'd spent a lot of time working with on the Virgin Galactic and obviously project from the sort of British government side, which is obviously how we met. But so I'm not saying it was your idea, but as in, but you were part of the sort of messengers back to Richard Branson that this is something he might be interested in. Well, I, I didn't take the message back, but I, I was asked what I what I thought of this vehicle, you know, and uh, and so I, you know, I read a little bit about it. I was slightly skeptical about um, this thing that folded itself in half because that's really unusual, you know, it folds itself in half for reentry, um, and. Um, uh, but then, you know, I, I went to fly the simulator and I talked to the engineers and it all started making sense. And I thought, wow, this 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 will work. And that's why I was convinced, you know, in early 2004 that they were they were going to do it. They were going to go to space. And um, and, and so I, so in my opinion, it was feasible and doable. And uh, Skill Composites was the company that could build something bigger and better. And so, you know, I think my opinion was uh, taken into account when the when the when Richard was approached with um, uh, with the prospect of of getting involved in this. So suddenly, the dream you had as a child suddenly became within touching distance, or at least the job that would allow that thing to happen was now a real thing. It, it, yeah, exactly. You know, so you know, I'd gone through this stage of really passionately, quite passionately, wanting to become an astronaut, and then the so gradual realization, you know, coming back down to reality is, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen in the UK. To suddenly, you know, a few years later, this possibility arising. So you know, never give up on your dreams. You know, you you just never know when it's going to happen. Wow, extraordinary. So obviously, I mean, this is a, as it should be because this is incredibly complex. Um, this has obviously been a very long process, and I think four or five years ago, you know, I, I, I probably visited you at the Mojave site two or three times with sort of British government ministers because we were interested in the whole thing. And I think one, I didn't, I didn't get to fly the simulator. I think I sat behind a minister, a government minister, when they were allowed to either sit next to you or, or, or fly the uh, simulator sit next to me is yeah um and which which was extraordinary uh, and i know that 
obviously you've now moved the fact that you've moved to Mojave obviously you're getting closer to this moment so how how high have you flown how high have you taken the ship now we flew uh, on the last flight I did we went to just under 300,000 feet and f- for reference for those who are not experts here when they go on holiday and they're flying a 747 what does that fly at Approximately. Uh, well, a 747 would fly typically um, 35,000 feet or something. Like yeah. That. So what constitutes space? Uh, 50 miles constitutes space. So uh, the, uh, the, the FAA, uh, the, the U.S. Uh, Federal Aviation Administration, uh, recognizes uh, any flight above 50 miles as being a space flight, as does the USAF and as does NASA. So how many times have you been into space? For real, once. <laughs> I've done it many times in the simulator. So, yeah, we last flew, uh, let me think, it was, uh, I should know this relation. It was February of uh, 2019. And um, and that was our last flight. So, yeah, a lot has happened since then. Um, you know, we've uh, we've moved the... The whole company, the Virgin Galactic Operation, to New Mexico. Uh, we've uh, developed the uh, cabin interior. So that that flight that I did uh, was the first with someone in the back. And so we had the whole idea here is that we are taking people in this extraordinary experience into space, and we want them to experience weightlessness as well as the amazing views of the Earth. We want them to properly experience weightlessness. Now, to properly experience it, you need to float free. You need to unstrap from your seat. So we're actually, this was the the ambitious concept from the beginning was that we would fly people into space. They would unstrap from their seats. They would float around and feel weightlessness all over their body, admire the views out the window, and then be able to return to the seats in weightlessness, strap in and uh, re-enter and then we glide back down and land and so that last flight was the first time that we had someone in the cabin and uh, she was one of our staff uh, Beth Moses and there were some experiments back there as well so it, w- it wasn't the commercial interior but we felt we were ready to we had all our flying had all our flights up to that point had gone so well we felt we were ready for that next step which was to take someone in the back go to space, allow them to unstrap, uh, let her float around and get back in. And then so we basically we proved the concept. And so on that basis, we went ahead with the, the move to our commercial operating base, which is here in New Mexico. And uh, so we've, we've made that move. We've uh, made some improvements. So every, every time we fly, we get lots of great data. And where we can make improvements, we, we do so. So we've made some improvements to the ship. We've installed a commercial interior. We've moved the whole company. And now we're ready to fly again. What's interesting is I know that you know, people have had deposits down for this for probably a few years now. And in amazing numbers, and I remember talking to one of your people about it, and it was he was explaining the demographic. So there are, as you would expect, a good smattering of very, very high net worth individuals, a few celebrities and so on who've put down deposits. But there's also, I recall him saying, there's quite a lot of people who've put down, you know, people of 
I guess you would call you know relatively average means who are you know have got who are prepared to do this and what you know would put up the equivalent of probably their mortgage in order to do this. So it's not just going to be very very rich people. This is something that obviously it's not cheap to do, but it, it's not going to be some lineup of celebs. There are real enthusiasts for whom this is an incredible opportunity. Absolutely, yeah. no, you're right. The, there are there are many people who are very well off, uh, but there are, there are definitely there's at least two, I believe, that that have remortgaged their houses to do this, you know, and are finding other ways of uh, getting the money to to do it. Um, we have a very passionate customer base, a very loyal customer base as well, and and super enthusiastic people. I've I've met many of them, and they they come and visit us regularly. And you know, a, a lot of them are actually very like the people that work for Virgin Galactic. You know, they're uh, maybe engineering background, successful business people, uh, but enthusiastic, really super enthusiastic about what we're doing and passionate about it. And uh, you, I've, I've met many of them that I thought, you know, you could actually work here, you know, because they're that, that those sort of people. Yeah. And uh, so uh, the other thing is that they, they get, they're, they're like-minded. And so they have this, basically they have a, a club uh, and the club often does very interesting things. Like um, a couple of years ago, uh, we went to see the solar eclipse here in the States. We went up to to, uh, to Utah and uh, to a fantastic uh, location up there to watch the, the, the total solar eclipse. And so we have speakers come in. Um, some of our some of our customers are actually uh, very talented people, very talented speakers and, and authors, writers, that kind of thing. And um, so they, they get together, they network. They often meet Richard Branson as well. So... You know, there have been a couple of occasions where I've uh, said to people, you know, I'm sorry it's taking a bit longer than we thought. And they said, hey, don't worry about it. You know, we're we're, we're having a great time here. We're in no rush to fly. This is a great club. <laughs> so they, yeah, it's it's a bit of a club. And uh, there'll probably be uh, a post-flight club as well to keep them, keep them all yeah. involved. I'm sure that's right. So in terms of how it works, and, you know, people, obviously, they've signed up. You know, when, when when the flights are happening, whenever that is, people will come along and it will be like a multi-day experience because you need to do training. How long? So can you just sort of walk us through what this looks like? So how long will you be sort of there for? How long is the flight? How long is the sort of weightless element of that flight and, and, and maybe any decompression afterwards? Just to get a feel, if you were, if I was a customer, if I paid my deposit and I'm on the list, and every you know every flight that goes, few seats get taken. It gets to my turn. What would I experience? Uh, I think you'd have a great experience. It is more than just a flight. Yeah. So uh, we have an amazing facility here in New Mexico at uh, Spaceport. It's called the Gateway to Space, and uh, that is um, it was uh, designed and built by uh, Sir Norman Foster and his team. So. Um, it really is a kind of space age facility. It's it's really in the in a very remote part of New Mexico, and uh, so it's a long drive out there through you know uh, a totally empty countryside, beautiful countryside. Much of it actually, ironically, reminds me of certain parts of the north of Scotland. Mm. And uh, so you drive up there, and suddenly out of the in the middle of this, you know, just 
desolate uh, landscape appears as space age facilities. Quite remarkable, I think. So on day one, you you arrive and uh, you're welcomed into the gateway to space. Now I'm, I'm not going to tell you exactly what it looks like because <laughs> it's a it's a very special experience. But um, just the the arrival in there to the gateway uh, and into the area where you're going to to spend the next few days will be really special. You'll see some amazing sights and sounds on, on the way in there. Um, and then your, your training begins. So it's like an, an introduction to what's going to happen over the next few days to the, the people who are uh, going to train with you uh, and who are going to train you. And, and Beth will be one of those. She'll be heading up the astro, what we call the astronaut instruction um, uh, branch. Um, and, you know, part of that training will be to get you familiar with the equipment that you're going to be wearing, uh, the equipment that you're going to be interacting with, which is mainly the seat and the communication system. Uh, there'll be a, uh, an overview of the, the flight profile. This is what you can expect to see and hear and feel during the flight. So we don't want to spoil the surprise, but we don't want the surprises to, uh, to unsettle you. So, uh, so that's part of the training. You know, what, what is actually going to happen? What will you hear? What will you feel? Those kinds of things. Uh, they have their own simulator, which is basically, um, it looks like the spaceship. It's full scale. They have seats on board. They have a communication system on board. And so they'll do several sessions in there. Um, and for some of those sessions, the pilots will be in the crew that they fly will be in there too. Uh, we will also do... Uh, or offer them some uh, flying in our extra aerobatic aircraft. And that will be to, you know, there are, there are some quite powerful accelerations during this flight. When the rocket motor lights, the acceleration is quite large. And so we want people to know what that feels like. What, what, how does it feel on your body when you're subjected to those accelerations? So we'll give them an insight into that as well. Many of our customers have already gone to the to a, a centrifuge so a centrifuge for anyone that doesn't know is, is a box on the end of an arm you sit inside a box and it goes at high speed around a circle so you feel the forces that you would feel if you went around a corner in a car at uh, at high speed uh, and very sharply you'd feel that same force but more so in a, in a centrifuge and so if many of them have done that already some of them have been on zero g flights in in aircraft where they Go up steeply, push over such that the, the G level reduces. So it's like we're going over the top of a roller coaster. So many of them have also done that. But for those that haven't, that's not compulsory before you arrive. For those of, that haven't done that, we'll give them an insight into those forces in the extra as well. And um, so, so there's three days really of of training, and it's not all you know hard work there's uh, it's interspersed with uh, some fun things as well and they will have a very nice lounge and there will be some nice whiskies there too excellent are you personally <laughs> selecting the whiskies i think i should do i think i should sample no one more expert in the company than you i don't think on that subject <laughs> well so i um i i've kind of instituted a, a little um uh celebration after each flight which is uh, a bottle of Kleinleisch, you know, or actually it was, it started out being a, a dram of Kleinleisch, but it's, uh, it's everybody that I've offered the Kleinleisch to really, really likes it. And now it turn, turns into, you know, a bottle each flight. 
I don't drink at all, by the way. No, no, no. <laughs> Extraordinary. And so how long will they be in the aircraft for? All right, yeah, so so they'll get into, so basically what happens is they will get into the aircraft shortly before, after the pilot's already been in and um, prepared it, uh, we'll bring them on board uh, shortly before we take off. So it'll be pretty quick, you know, they won't be sitting around very long inside uh, the vehicle, but they'll be brought on board, uh, help to uh, uh, fasten in, uh, strap into their seats and get their communication system, we'll welcome them on board. Uh, White Knight 2, our mothership, carries us up to launch altitude we'll start his engines and then we'll taxi out and take off so the whole thing from uh, takeoff to landing uh, for from getting on board to getting off again is going to be something like an hour and a half mm. uh, it takes about an hour or so to climb up to launch altitude uh, and then uh, once we're at launch altitude on heading and we've done our final checks and we release the spaceship once the spaceship is released we light the rocket motor the motor only burns for a minute. That's all it, it lights. That's all it needs because we're already up at around about uh, 45,000 feet. And at that altitude, you're already above most of the Earth's atmosphere. The air there is really thin, so it can accelerate really quickly. There's very little drag on it. And so we accelerate. We go supersonic in about uh, less than 10 seconds, and we pull it up into the vertical, still accelerating, uh, and there's tremendous force and fire all the way up in space. Burns for about a minute. And we have run about three or so minutes of uh, weightlessness where you can unstrap and take in these extraordinary views. Uh, and then we re-enter and then there's a glide back down after re-entry for about 15 minutes to the final uh, full stop landing. And uh, then we get um, uh, the, the customers will come off the vehicle um, and walk back into the gateway to space in the walk of fame walk of heroes walk back in there for a celebratory party and astronaut wings. Amazing. Amazing. So look, you've obviously, um, I don't know, do you actually know how many flight hours you've got in your entire career? I've got, the last time I looked, it was around about 15,000. Okay. So you've flown a lot, it would be fair to say. And as you were saying before, when you're, when you're, when you were flying sort of Virgin Atlantic, you take your camera out and, obviously all that sort of stuff. Now, this is a very different thing. When you're, obviously you've flown, you know, so you've been into space once, you've obviously done all these test flights. Obviously there's a lot to do. Do you get the chance to realise what you're actually doing in terms of how you are sort of changing, you know, the story about humans on Earth or are you just like, right, must press this button next and must do this next? Like, do you get a chance to really understand the, the gravity to use completely the wrong word of what it is that you're doing. Uh, yeah. So the, you know, the flying it, we're in a test program. So we're obviously, you know, we're trying to get as much data as we possibly can. We're trying to fly the vehicle uh, as best we can to get the data that uh, our engineers want to look at. And so there are parts of the flight that where it's really intense for us as test pilots gathering all this data, and we're fully focused on what we're what we're doing. We we rehearse for it many many hours, practice for it many many times in the simulator. But on the space flight, once you leave the atmosphere and you enter space, the 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 vehicle is on this predetermined ballistic flight path, and we can change the attitude. We've got a reaction control system which. Uh, which is basically uh, 
compressed air directed to the extremities of the vehicle. So with that, we can alter the, the, the attitude of the aircraft, its pitch, its roll, its yaw, and so that we can, we can target any attitude we like. So we can go up into space backwards, sideways. It doesn't matter because we're outside the atmosphere. So when we're on that ballistic flight path, on that last space flight we did, we leave the atmosphere, we're in space, and, and now we're on this coast, this path coasting upwards into space and back downwards again in weightlessness. And there's a whole period there, several minutes, where we actually don't have a lot to do. And in fact, the vehicle on my space flight was behaving absolutely perfectly. Everything was beautiful. And, uh, you know, I went to, I remember once I went to adjust something, I was like, no, I don't need to do that. It's just, it's perfect, you know. And uh, so we had several minutes there where we're, uh, we're weightless, we're in space. Uh, the vehicle is flying perfectly. There's no movement. There's no noise. There are no fans. And uh, you've got this incredible vista outside the window. I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. I still gives me goose pumples. Just think about it even now. And it's an extraordinary feeling and sensation, you know, of just being weightless, no forces, no sound. And this incredible view outside space is, you know, we're flying in daytime, uh, but the sky is densely black. So there you are, you're bathed in bright in the brightest sun you've ever been in because you're outside the atmosphere. But the sky is densely black. It's like a, a matte black, the back, blackest black you've ever seen. That sounds like, that sounds stupid, but believe me, it is an amazing sight. And uh, and then down beneath you, the the Earth is incredibly bright. And I remember the first time we ever started doing these high altitude flights up to say a hundred thousand feet or so, I was kind of surprised by how bright the Earth's surface was. But if you think about it now, I'm looking straight down through the atmosphere, as opposed to when you're on the surface, you're looking horizontally through it, and you're looking through, you know, the dust particles and the moisture. And even on a clear day, when you think you can see, oh, I can see you know twenty miles or thirty miles or something. That's nothing compared to looking vertically down through it. The atmosphere is incredibly thin. You can walk. Well, very few people have walked to the really the top of the usable atmosphere, to the top of Everest, you know, and most people are out of breath about 15,000 feet. The atmosphere is very, very thin looking vertically down through it. So the sun penetrates straight down through there and reflects off the surface of the air. The earth looks incredibly bright. And the day that we flew, there was a lot of snow on the Sierra Nevada mountains, and it was just it was just sparkling and glistening. Beth said the Earth is wearing her diamonds, which I thought was a fantastic description of the way it looked. And uh, and then separating the two, this intensely black, densely black sky, space, and this very very bright surface of the Earth is the atmosphere, which is spectacularly beautiful, and no picture I've ever seen has captured all of that in one go. The human eye is amazing. It can capture that range of brightness in the way that a camera still can't, I, I, I don't believe. You know, I've never seen it captured in that way. The atmosphere was complex. There were multiple layers. It was very, very thin, which is kind of scary in a way, and uh, but beautiful, beautiful shades of cyan blue. So it's an incredible sight. And you know, you look down on the surface and you can see for, you know, many hundreds of miles and there are no borders. It's beautiful and the atmosphere is really, really thin. And you think, well, that, that atmosphere is what's keeping us alive. We have got to take care of that atmosphere. That's 
you know, something that kind of hit me loud and clear. And and then just looking down at the surface, you know, this is the most beautiful, beautiful planet. The other remarkable thing for me was we were so high, you can you see the curvature of the Earth in a way which gives you a sense of scale of the planet. And actually, it's not very big, you know, from up there. Mm. And you look out at this densely black sky and you can see nothing else. And we have this, so we have this small, beautiful planet protected by this very, very thin atmosphere. And there appears to be nothing else for forever almost, you know. So I think it's a very impactful experience. And I hope that our customers will come back down with a, a sense of how important it is to look after our planet and how fragile our planet is and maybe be able to influence uh, other people and, and change their lifestyles to uh, to look after what we've got here. Yeah. Wow, what an extraordinary answer. Dave, this has been absolutely fascinating. I, I have to ask, we are, we are going to run out of time. Um, so I have to ask you one final question because I don't think there's a question I can ask that will give a better answer than you've just given. So I'm going to come on to our final question, which we ask every guest, which is, if you could drink any whiskey with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be, what would it be, and where would it be? Wow. Um, you know, I. Uh, that, that's a great question. I mean, there are many, many people. That's a very, it's like, you know, what's your favorite airplane? What's your favorite piece of music? There are many people I, I'd like to share that with. Um I, you know, Neil Armstrong was a huge influence in my life. And, um, you know, what he did was absolutely extraordinary. The first um, moon landing, the first man to walk on the moon. Um, he landed with Buzz Aldrin, of course. But um, that first landing was an extraordinary event. And, um, you know, when you think about it, uh, it was the first time that man, uh, humans were ever going to uh, land on a, another body in the solar system. Uh, they, they set off down there uh, and they had computer issues straight away, or almost straight away. They didn't really understand what the issue was. Uh, they were flying longer than they expected. They And that turned out to be because they hadn't calculated the lunar gravity correctly. They There were concentrations of of mass on the lunar surface, which disrupted their flight profile. So they were uncertain of where they were when they landed uh, and they were incredibly short of fuel. And, you know, I don't know, half the world was watching, you know, what an incredible achievement to, to carry that out uh, under, you know, the most high pressure piece of uh, aviation flying ever. And um, that was an extraordinary event. I did have the privilege of meeting him once briefly. Um, I ended up uh, uh, talking, uh, sharing a platform with him uh, briefly uh, at Palo Alto a few years ago. And uh, and I ended up talking after him, which is... Now, normally you try and avoid the after the after dinner, don't you? But here I was given the after Neil Armstrong uh, period. Anyway, I, I met him very briefly, and uh, he, was, he was a very humble, uh, wonderful person. I'd love to... I spent more time with him mm. uh, talking about some of the things he did. Uh, he flew the X-15, which is the X-15 is our, uh, an air launch rocket powered aircraft. So very similar to what we're doing in uh, Virgin Galactic. So I'd love to have uh, had a whiskey with him and chatted about some of that stuff. Extraordinary. 
Dave Mackay, um, so grateful for your insights and the amazing descriptions of, of the things you've done. Um, it's been a it's been a remarkable discussion. So I'm very grateful for you. So I know how busy you are because you're literally trying to get people up into space as soon as possible. So thank you very much for your time and good luck with the next stage of this endeavour. Thank you very much, Dan. It's been a pleasure talking to you again and, and seeing you again. Thank you. Mm, I love scotch. 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 And don't forget to not just follow us on Twitter and Instagram at US of Dramerica, but also ask us questions and comment and say nice things. And please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if the mood takes you, you can leave us a review as uh, feedback is always welcome. And drink whiskey. Slonchevar. <laughs>